The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hello, Josh. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Uh, busy day. Uh, very once busy Once again, day. in the Manafort trial. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're you know, we have, a, we have a, a, a few of our colleagues who are on vacation now. We have uh, two staffers who are basically tied to... Right. The Manafort trial, like actually, you know, in the courtroom right. every day, it's going on, and then and then editors who are fielding their copy. So we got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. But today, we have a lot of you will know will will know of this next guest. Her name's Marcy Wheeler. Again, a lot of you, uh, I'm sure, have, have known her name for a very long time. She has a blog called Empty Wheel. She she has been blogging for. Um, 13 or 14 years, uh, usually about a mix of sort of national security, intelligence, and uh, law enforcement stuff. I think one of the a lot of a lot of a lot of people first um, found out about her writing during the Scooter Libby uh, investigation with the you know Valerie Plame and 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 all that stuff. Uh, and she is very deep now on the Trump Russia story. Um, and she just has like an encyclopedic knowledge of all the different moving parts. I mean, I, 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 um, I, I, I like to pr- pride myself in really kind of, yeah, there's this part, you got to remember that part and stuff. And uh, you talk to Marcy, you're like, wow, what, what? I've never <laughs> even heard of that thing, right? And just Yeah, she's dates, a must, a must yeah, read, a must yeah, follow she, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we are about to talk to Marcy, and but before that, we are going to tell you about uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. One in New York City's favorite cold brew, head to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivered the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. It's true. You don't need sugar. Yeah, well, it's, you know, <laughs> some, of depend- us yeah, to some of us, it doesn't apply to all of us. Uh, Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. Ready to get us, give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. You know, I'll, I'll say a couple things here. First of all, I know that Grady is independently owned because there's actually a Grady. Right. There's actually a guy named Grady. <laughs> in fact, right. I'm looking at um, I'm looking at an email right now that's actually from Grady. So there's not. So this isn't like some market tested, like we'll call that's it right. Grady. It's just actually a legitimate Grady. Right. Shout out Grady. Yeah. Shout out Grady. And the other thing I'll, I'll say too, I don't want to like contradict the ad, but they say concentrate here, <laughs> but like. 
it's you actually well, drink, you, know, you drink it that way. Right. I don't know, maybe some people. Well, I water it down. Okay, but, you know, well, we won't talk about Different that. strokes. Yeah, different strokes. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, try uh, Grady's cold rice coffee. It's great. Everybody here at TPM uh, drinks it. We run on it? Yeah, we absolutely run on it, uh, keeping the productivity high. And so let's talk to Marcy Wheeler. Hi, Marcy. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So let me ask you. There's a, there's a bunch of questions I I, uh, I wanted to ask you, but from from watching the Manafort trial um, unfold, and I guess we don't know exactly uh, what percentage we're through with it, but we're uh, well into the government's case. Is there any what what has surprised you most, or is or have there not been many surprises for you? I don't know that there have been huge surprises, but I think the trial really hits home the degree to which the, the, the trouble that Manafort was in in 2016. Right. In other words, uh, today Gates said that he was he had no income by March 20, 2016, and there's stuff from August 2016 where it's pretty clear he's hoping they'll win in November and he'll start paying. You know, he'll start capitalizing on working for Trump for free. So right. that's just remarkable. So is there now, you know, one of one of the things one of the things I wanted to ask you is you have you are you are I guess you were originally sort of a a a Trump Russia skeptic um, and and I I guess are are no longer so. But you still think that the that the Steele dossier, which bulks very large in this whole story for a lot of people, is either is is basically just a dry hole or maybe even like misinformation can you why do you why do you think that what what is the what is the basis of thinking that well first of all we virtually nothing has been confirmed as it appears in the dossier that that wasn't otherwise published publicly so in other words we knew because the washington post published it uh contemporaneously we knew that carter page was going to moscow uh, it turns out he met with different people in Moscow when he was there, as far as we know. And some of those meetings may not be all that interesting. Um, on the area of, of the hacks, the dossier is is absurd. Um, in other words, like you you would have been better off reading public reporting or at least um, infosec reporting from 2015 on how well. Russia was doing it, hacking the United States, than you would reading Steele's reports in 2016. And so if Hillary had had um, used the dossier to decide how to respond when, when they discovered that they had been hacked in June or in April, um, she would have been complacent because she would have thought Russia was less accomplished in hacking than anybody who was in InfoSec knew by then. Right. And, and so that's sort of that's sort of inexplicable. And then, you know, basically what the dossier tends to do is it, 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 I mean, why doesn't it, why doesn't it tell us anything about Don Jr.? Don Jr. was not hiding what he was doing. He was meeting with all these Russians. He's the guy that we would have been interested in. Instead, the dossier uh, focuses people on Carter Page, who equally as much adult as Don Jr., but far, far removed from the question of whether Trump himself was being compromised by the Russians. Right. Now, now, do you think that that is your assumption that it's just a, you know, uh, an investigator not looking in the right places and coming up with, you know, uh, 
I, either flawed information or just not getting a lot. Or I, some people have speculated that that he was actually being fed disinformation. Do you have a Do you have a, a, a take on that, or is it or is it more just that kind of nothing is really panned out and it's just not where to look? Um, I think it was disinformation. I mean, I think certainly the later ones, especially the the last report, the December thirteenth report that. Uh, BuzzFeed got sued over. I think that was clearly disinformation. Um, we knew it was public. Again, uh, you you could have read Adrian Chen from 2015 to know where the troll farm was operating, and instead this pointed somewhere else to a different firm operating the troll farm rather than the troll farm that, but it was already public. And and I think I mean there are a number of ways the Russians could have figured out that Steele was working on a dossier, and I suspect after the FIFA work, um, they they made a lot of effort to track down his sources um, and be able to do that kind of thing, to feed them disinformation. But Steele himself, or people uh, relying on Steele, have said that uh, as it was, his sources dried up pretty quickly after he started the project. So even according to him, he was he was working off the sources that were... Um, that were less tested for him. Right. I, I just think that, yeah, I mean, I think there were so many ways the Russians could have found out about the dossier, whether it's uh, people associated with fusion or um, the Russians, according to the GRU indictment, were already in the DNC email servers at a time when um, Steele may have, there may have been early discussions about bringing Steele on. So in other words, they may have learned about the Christopher Steele project by hacking the Democrats. Right, 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 right. So, what, what was? Am I right that sort of in the in the beginning of this, you you were more skeptical of, for lack of a better word, of the of the of the global story? I mean, that would make sense. I mean, yeah. it's before we knew a lot. So, tell me, what were? Obviously, we've learned a great deal over the last. I mean, God, like two two years now, but. What was the progression for you? Was it just a matter of we just have, you know, just over time we got more evidence, we learned about the Trump Tower meeting and stuff like that? Or were there, or, or were there develop, you know, specific developments that change your perspective on the whole story? Um, I think one of the things that it's important for people to understand is the, it, the case that GRU, that Russian military intelligence hacked John Podesta, is pretty solid. Um, the the um, fish was already public well before the intelligence community released their report. And what people don't understand is that the first files released, um, the files released by Guccifer 2.0 in, in June of 2016, those files, that the ones that we can trace the source to, came from Podesta. They did not come from the DNC, contrary to what Guzmán 2.0 said. So, um, so the first files that we saw from that Russian um, persona came from Podesta, came from the hack that we can point to with far more attribution. I think the Russians, we are going to discover that the Russians built in two or three levels of possible deniability on how they gave files to Julian Assange, how they how they got WikiLeaks to do it, and and they may have done that by giving the same files or some version of the files to 
WikiLeaks via three different channels, and so Assange can pick one of the channels and say, that one's not Russian. Right. Um, but, but the question of Podesta to Guccifer is, is, is very easy to show is Russian. Got it. Okay. So was that, so how does that fit into sort of your, the progression of your thinking about the story? Um, I needed to, you know, I, I've said this publicly that somebody had pitched me in an alternate theory, um, basically that, and I've written this up, that, um, that there, there were these, um, releases of hacked credentials, uh, from LinkedIn hacked and, um, MySpace hacked. And you could attribute uh, seven of the nine mailboxes that were sent to Assange from those uh, from those um, credential releases, and the, and the release was inexplicable. It was done in May 2016, so literally days before we know that the emails were exfiltrated. So that's an alternate explanation for um, how those emails would have been given over to WikiLeaks. And I, one of the things that happened was I became convinced that even if that were the way that the emails had gotten taped, that had gotten stolen, there was so much Russian involvement. This is uh, the case of um, uh, Vigeny Nikulin, who's another Russian, who, a hacker who was arrested in Prague in, in October 2016. So, um, so that was one way. Um, and then I, uh, there were other details that I became increasingly convinced. I, I had... Um, uh, you know, I I, heard, I knew what the tech companies were seeing mm-hmm. very early on. Stuff that has like stuff that shows up in the indictment that came out last week or two weeks ago. Um, so that that was a big thing. I I spoke with somebody who um, worked security on a um, server that fewer people knew got hacked, and that was pretty convincing because I was being told firsthand exactly who right. had done it and how, how it had happened. So. Right. Yeah, there, it's funny, I, 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 and I've written about this, that there, when, when, when the Washington Post first reported, I guess, I think June 14th, 2016, uh, that, the, that the DNC servers had been hacked and the sort of the, the, the centerpiece of that story was that CrowdStrike, which is the private... Uh, security company that they brought in to investigate what had happened, that CrowdStrike basically said they thought it was Russian state actors. And that was, so that was the story that, that comes out in, in mid-June 2016. And uh, a friend of mine who, you know, is very, uh, very skeptical and even a little conspiratorial about things, kind of, uh, not not sold me on de- the idea that this was accurate necessarily, but that we should look into like is this CrowdStrike, you know, basically you know drumming up business basically you know kind of it's a it's a it's a it's a wow story and and they're a private contractor and 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 you know do they how do they really know it's it's Russia, and so we assigned a reporter to the story, and I, I wouldn't say we got you know that deep. But I was, I was struck that we did, you know, we didn't find really knowledgeable people saying, "Oh, that's you know, th- that's BS." Their arguments, like most of the people we talked to, were sort of like, you know, you can't know, but it does look like it's probably that, and that that was certainly a. Um, I mean, again, it, sa- it sounds like you had some much more, um, some much more close to the source information, but that sort of shaped my thinking uh uh as well 
So let me let me ask you th- th- this question. There's um, th- there's this period uh, between. I mean, you can you can sort of define the period in any number of ways, but especially from say late March of 2016 through you know into July, where we have the things happening with Papadopoulos. We have the the uh, you know these the sort of you know pre leaks that you know with DC leaks and Guccifer and so forth or not Guccifer but DC leaks. Uh, we had the Trump Tower meeting. We have all these things happening in this pretty compressed period of time, um, and and to me the 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 big outstanding question is you know a lot of things overlapping in time, but it's very hard to have a sense of are these sort of you know, different tracks of, uh, you know, approaches from the Russians to Trump? Are they are there are there connections that we don't know about yet? Uh, Do you have a global sense of that when you put when you put that period together, say, late spring, early summer of 2016? Do you have a, a global working theory of what was happening? Um, I have said that I believe there was sort of a call and response going on. So, in other words, the Russians kept saying, if you give us this signal, then we'll take the next step. And you can put some of those together. So, And Don Jr., frankly, is at the center of them. You know, Don Jr. is approached at the NRA, then Don Jr. is approached by Aguilarov, and then Don Jr. goes to that Syria meeting. Um, Don Jr. really is more central to this than I think people make out. And it's it's sort of a, like, uh, this this shows up in the Papadopoulos plea. It's like, you do X, you make some kind of public signal, and then something will happen in response. And, that, and that's one of the ways I think of it. But I think one other thing, there's been a ton of discussion since this started about the relationship between GRU, so Russian Military Intelligence, and FSB, which is um, domestic security for the Russians. Um, and that, that's gotten a lot of the attention, but one of the most interesting things in the Maria Butina, so the NRA spy, alleged spy, um, one of the most interesting things in her indictment is the notion that, that she, her efforts were paid for by yet another oligarch. And so what we saw there was basically privatized intelligence. You right. saw that the oligarchs hanging around Vladimir Putin were themselves pursuing what what amount to be intelligence operations. I mean, that's effectively what what RS, what I think RS Agalarov was doing with the uh, Trump Tower meeting. And so, I think one way to understand these multiple efforts, certainly the NRA one, right? We now we know was funded by um, was funded by an oligarch, not. Russian military intelligence or anything like that. One of the ways to understand it is that there was this combined, almost like, I can almost imagine Putin, you know, bringing everyone together, all his favorite oligarchs together and say, go, find some way to compromise Donald Trump. And they all set off on their own parallel efforts to do so. And, and, uh, you know, 
who knows who got the prize from Vladimir Putin for succeeding, but right. um, that's sort of how I envision it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. When I, years ago, when I used to do, you know, one of the things for a, a young reporter at the time in D.C., and this is before everything was, you know, digitized and online, is you go down to the Farah office, right, and you just kind of like troll, I mean, in the old sense of the word, troll for stuff, uh, just because there's so much crazy shit in, you know, in, the, in, the, in those filings. And one of the things that anybody, and I haven't done this for years, I assume it's the same, but I, I, don't, I don't actually know. One of the things that you got used to is that it was pretty standard for, um, if you've got, you know, strongman leader in such and such country, um, the, the filings are seldom by the, govern, the government per se. It's usually by, you know, what we the kind of person that in a Russian context we would call, call an oligarch, uh, some very wealthy person who's close to the government and probably their wealth is in some sense kind of tied to the government. And this person is one who actually kind of, you know, makes the contracts and, 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 and does the stuff. And it's just a, you know, a certain level of deniability and all, all the stuff that, that goes into that. So that, that, that definitely makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I, there, there's. I don't know if this is a related issue, but one of the things that has come up in some discussions is that Putin has created basically a climate of competition between these or among these different intelligence services. So aside from there being this kind of semi-privatized framework that possibly, you know, y- you have this kind of, you know, one-upsmanship. Between, you know, between between the GRU, FSB, and even even that creating a, I've even seen some speculation of with these you know killings in in the UK. Not that Putin isn't ultimately responsible, but that he has encouraged a a climate of like hyper risk taking and recklessness in these in these security agencies. Um, so, is do you have? Let me ask you this question. With, with the Trump Tower meeting, and I was having a, a conversation about this with someone a few days ago, and they were kind of, you know, was it a bust? Was it not a bust? Was it, you know, maybe a bust to, to Don, you know, in Don Jr.'s eyes, but maybe not necessarily in the Russians? Do you, uh, my basic sense is it's not at all clear to me that we know what happened in that meeting at all. I mean, everybody who's a fact witness, I mean, the, the Russians and Russian-Americans seem a little more uh, open about it, but they have re- they don't have any, they have lots of reasons to deceive about what happened. Is, do you, do you kind of go in with the sense that we have a basic understanding of what happened in that meeting, or are you more agnostic? Well, um, one thing that's uh, very much contested, even in the public record, is whether Rob Goldstone left with everybody. Um, most of the most of the people who testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee said he did not, and and Mueller reportedly brought back some witnesses to find out who had seen Ivanka as they walked through the uh, the lobby as they exited, um, and he would know. Uh, Goldstone apparently left the meeting and took an Uber, so he you know this Uber is a great surveillance device, right. so he would know precisely when. So one question is whether there was a second part of the conversation between Goldstone, who of course was making inquiries, had had made an inquiry with Keith Hiller that day and made an inquiry with Lona Graf the next day about how to deliver things, how to deliver gifts to Trump, 
which I was up doing a painting um, on his birthday the day before the email started dropping. But but he was uh, by nature of preparing for that painting to be delivered, um, learning how to deliver things to the Trump people, and then um, Kavalaza, who uh, Kavalaza like. You, Rob Goldstone gets blamed for the meeting, but Ike Cavalazza, who worked for the Aguilera, um, everyone said within the Aguilera camp that he was in charge, that, that he was the one coordinating it. And he left, so everyone but Goldstone went and had a drink down in the lobby of Trump Tower after the meeting. And then um, Cavalazza got a call from Aguilera and then left. And it's unclear what he did afterwards. Uh, and, and when he first testified to SJC, the Senate Judiciary Committee, he told them that he had gone home to Los Angeles the next day. And then he subsequently admitted that, no, he got on a plane and went to Moscow the next day and had, and Kavalazza in, 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 in his interviews was quite honest about this. He's like, well, you know, when I have important things to say to my boss, Dagalara, I say them face to face because... I assume he's being wiretapped. And so, <laughs> right, so Kabbaladze, uh first of all, lies or is not fully honest about when he left New York, and he actually was in New York for most of the day, the following day, and he, um, and contrary to what he originally told SJC, he then got on a plane to Moscow and reported it to his boss. And so there's a lot of room for Kabbaladze to have done stuff uh, possibly go back and meet with maybe just Don Jr. or Manafort or whomever um, in that day that would explain why, and that there are some, you know, and he, he did two interviews in his second interview. He still was unwilling to say who he was calling the next day and, and describe, you know, who he was calling from Russia on, on June 15th, which is when the email started dropping. So um, I think, you know, my guess is there are that, uh, and this is the other thing. So Scott Balber is the lawyer for the Aguilara. He works for Crocus Group, which is uh, the Aguilara company here in the United States. So Scott Balber, lawyer for Aguilara, represents Ike Pavalaza, represents Emin Aguilara, whom Mueller is trying to get to testify, but never will, never is going to show up in the, in the country to have his phone seized and so on. Um, and, and Scott Balber, you could tell, as this story became public last year, he was coaching everybody. Um, and he actually represented Veselinskaya uh, in early 2017 as well. So he, and doesn't he, and he doesn't he have a history? Yeah, exactly. That's what, okay. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. So it's sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. He represented Trump on um, this universe thing in 2013. But he has represented virtually everyone in this story, with the possible exception of Rina Akhmetchin, you, you know, the guy who lives here in yep. DC. Um, and he's Russian American, right? He has he has American citizenship. Akhmetchin, or is he just like a or Balfour? N- no, uh, Akhmetchin. Yeah, yeah. He's got American citizenship, right. as does Kavalaza. Right, right. Um, but, um, but yeah, so Balzor, like, very carefully crafted this story, and you can see him during the Kavalaz interview where he, where he sort of offers up and says, here, why don't you describe that second conversation? Um, why don't you, like, there's this moment in the interview of Kavalaz where he says, why don't you describe meeting Ivanka in the, in the lobby? Um, and so I think that Scott Balzor, that lawyer, crafted a story that served 
certainly the Aguilera's purpose, and maybe the Trump's purpose. It's not. I don't think their their goals are necessarily the same. Right. Um, and so that's what we know. We know what Scott Balvin wants us to know. So there's one thing, and and. Uh Again, you know, sort of, as I'm sure is the case with you, one has numerous conversations sort of, you know, going day to day. And there are certainly some ways, if you, if, you, if you take all of the testimony that is extant about that meeting, there are parts of it that you can certainly interpret as uh, the Trump people sort of, you know, see the, the Ziff, Browder, uh, you know, offer, aren't impressed and basically say, you know, when you've got something good, come back to us. Or, you know, we're ready to deal, but this isn't good enough. Uh, and that can be interpret, certainly be interpreted as, you know, we are, we are more than happy. To, we're ready to reciprocate if we get help. This isn't enough help, which, which could certainly be interpreted, and I suspect was interpreted, as an open invitation to do what happened over, over the coming months. I guess my sense is that we don't know that that wasn't that that was not actually much more explicit in what was discussed either in that meeting or as what you were just saying you know maybe a meeting over drinks in the lobby or maybe a meeting the next day or all all the all these other all these other kind of things let me ask you this and and one of and i don't know if this strikes you well, as well let me interrupt yeah, on yeah, that yeah absolutely let me let me we we know what Don Jr. and Kushner, sort of, and all the Russian participants, the, the Russian side, we know what they said. We don't know what Paul Manafort said. Right, and that's what I was just going to go to. So, yeah, tell us, that, yeah. Yeah, what we know, first of all, is that Paul Manafort testified to the Senate Intelligence Committee on July 25th, expecting to testify to the Senate Judiciary Committee on July 26th, 2017, and was raided. Uh, and was raided with a warrant covering June 9th, uh, the June 9th meeting. And so uh, so there's good reason to believe some of what they seized in that the raid of his condo in Alexandria was about the June 9th meeting. Uh, it, there's a lot of good reasons to believe that. The other interesting thing about Manafort is, well, several interesting things, but one of the other interesting things about it is that Don Jr. releases his emails of the meeting, which are damning. But... He does not release a copy of the emails with Paul Manafort saying, "Okay, I'll meet you. I'll, I'll meet you at that meeting." Right. In other words, when Don Jr. and his lawyers decided to try and preempt the New York Times by by leaking his emails, they chose not to include that Paul Manafort seemed to be more in the loop on that than people make out. So I think it's quite likely, especially given the way I mean Trump has said publicly. Um, so long as Manafort doesn't flip, he's safe. Right. I think it's quite likely that Manafort had far more explicit conversations. And, I mean, who was, according to Mueller, asking Russians for help anyway in this period, and we now know is dead broke right. and desperate to win this election. So I think that it is likely, I, I have this fantasy, um, that the, when they raided Manafort's condo in, in Alexandria, they, they took eight iPads, oh, sorry, iPods, um, and that yeah, old was school. one of the things he was most concerned. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, but that, when, when he was challenging the search of his condo, he was like, you know, how dare you take these iPods? And I was like, well, they make great recording devices. Yeah. You can send signal texts on them. And, um, and he really wanted to, to make the seizure of those iPods 
uh, impermissible. And so I have this fantasy that he recorded the entire meeting on an iPod, and that that'll be you know that'll be the big pièce de résistance right. of the June ninth meeting someday. So here, okay, so so kind of. Two two related issues here. Now, one you you mentioned before, which is a hundred percent right that that Don Jr. Is, is just much more central to this than I ever would have imagined, and it's it's such a you know when when the when the Trump Tower thing happened, I was like, okay, this is the time, you know, this is the one time that you know maybe he kind of bonded with Emin or something, and so they reached out to John Don Jr. But it just kept being more and more, you know, him having now. And it just it it strikes me as so odd because he just seems like just kind of a doofus, basically. Um, And obviously, often that's who you target, someone who's, you know, who's who's not that sophisticated. But what what has always struck me, and this is, I, I think, you know, what what you're alluding to is that it is certainly maybe not likely, but to, a, to at least to a degree, uh, in that meeting, whatever happened in that meeting, whether it's minimal or maximal, something like Don Jr., this isn't his world. He doesn't know that, you know, kind of intelligence for, you know, kind of uh, international intrigue stuff. Same with Jared Kushner. Uh, that doesn't mean they're that you just, you know, kind of <laughs> large adult sons or whatever that, you know, that, that, that but still... They're not sophisticated. Paul Manafort is very sophisticated. You don't operate in other countries like that without having, you know, being asked to debrief U.S. intelligence, being, you know, crossing paths with foreign intelligence. And obviously, these people are from Paul's neighborhood. So it, it, that has always struck me as sort of the big thing, because if anybody knows what's going on, Paul knows what's going on. So you really want to have a sense of, of his role. And as you say, kind of like a lot of, a lot of other people have talked a lot. He hasn't talked much at all. Um, what did you make of that's It's, you know, it's, it's such a funny thing since, since, you know, aside from the president himself, almost no one has less credibility than Michael Cohen. But what did you make of that kind of boomlet a week or two ago about Cohen allegedly saying there was this planning meeting and Rick Gates was in it. And do you, is that, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, obviously Giuliani felt the need to preempt it. Right. So there, there was something there. And um, remember that on June 7th, um, that's the day that Trump came out and said, we're going to have this report on Hillary Clinton soon. It's going to be great. That day he had a private meeting with Manafort. And if just making that statement, one way or another, there would have been a planning meeting on this dirt they're going to release on Hillary Clinton. Like, you don't, you don't make an, I mean, maybe Trump does, but normally, and he was being managed by whatever else you think about Paul Manafort, he is a competent campaign manager. Um, you don't make an announcement with that without planning. And so, you, you know, there, there would have been, some kind of discussions about this Hillary meeting, whether or not it had to do with the dirt they expected to get. Right. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think everyone says that it was known ahead of time. And there is that statement and there is the, the, you know, the phone call that Don Jr. appears to maybe give to his father and, 
the sense that Paul Manafort, I mean, there's also two phone calls that Don Jr. makes. He makes calls, he definitely makes calls to Manafort. And so Manafort's in the loop with Don Jr. about what this is. Manafort would have been the person or one of the people that um, that George Papadopoulos would have told that he got offered emails from. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's without even Cohen's bombshell right. and ignoring that Steve Bannon has said it already and, and Corey Lewandowski has said it already. I mean, without even all of that, uh, there is the, the chain of communications that would lead you to believe that people knew about it ahead of time. Um, and, and don't forget that 40 minutes after the meeting started, Trump texted out yet another one of his email, uh, tweets about Hillary Clinton. So, you know, there's a lot of reason to believe there was more there than than we know about. Right. And, and they're obviously, I mean, it's like, I think we can all agree at this point that Don Jr. and Don Sr. have told serial lies about this, so we should <laughs> never, we should not, you know, they're not telling the truth, so right. why should we believe their current story? Right, right, right. No, that, I mean, that's one of the most enduring parts of this whole story that I mean that that almost I mean almost to a degree you would say that if a you know if a if a storyline was sort of kind of uh, you know hanging in the closet and had been attested to by no one the fact that that uh, Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr. took it out of the closet and attested to it would be invalidating in itself just because they only lie right so so yeah no uh, uh Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, one of the strange and this is one of those kind of weird conditioning things about this story is that in in most ways, these things that seem like bombshells, that there was a planning meeting that Trump knew about in advance. I mean, these things are obvious. The idea that you would that you would have a meeting like that and go into it cold seems preposterous. There's just no way you would not, especially if you had someone like like Manafort on the team. Who knows that world? Of course, you're going to get together, and I mean, we don't. It, you know, it just it 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 speaks for itself. Let me conclude on this question, and I want to be respectful because I know that you have, um, you you've you've discussed this publicly, but obviously there's there's much of it you are for reasons I think we all understand, uh, not wanting to go into great de- detail. But I guess uh, was it uh, two or three weeks ago? I may have the exact time wrong. You mentioned that. You had, and correct me if I'm if I'm misstating key parts of this, that you had spoken to investigators from the Mueller probe with people with the special counsel's office about information that uh, information that you had that you thought was relevant, and as I understand your explanation, that this was information that you came by in the pro in the in the course of your reporting but that someone who was a source acted sufficiently in bad faith with you and you know the well-being of others was you know uh in play and that you decided to to take this step and and before you say anything so i you know i'll just sort of speak out loud at what it has always struck me that this this even though you can't talk about the 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 heart of what this is about, it certainly seems that whatever it is that you know and shared with the with the special counsel's office um, 
uh, is, is something that that how can I put this? That makes there be more more of a there there than some people might think. I guess is is how I'd put it. With me having said all this stuff, what can you share about that? Why that happened? How it happened? And again, we understand that probably not too much. But but what can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, well, I will say this, and this is actually an interest. This is a telling little tidbit. I actually didn't uh, interview with the Mueller team. I interviewed with the FBI. Okay. Okay. Um, not the Mueller team. And it is my belief that the substance of my interview got moved under Mueller after that. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So, Interesting. So what I told the FBI, and, and the, you know, one of the main reasons I went to the FBI is sort of people aren't really thinking of it as part of the same operation. So that's part of the reason that's, you know, that's sort of a little background to it. So I have this interview um the FBI over some period of time must have corroborated what I told them sufficiently to not just pursue what I told them, but to say this belongs under Mueller. I mean, I'm not saying that, that, that I got moved under Mueller, you know, something I said, but, but in other words, um, yeah, so now, so, and certainly, you know, in the course of, of doing that post, it's clear to me that at least some of what I went to the FBI about did get moved under Mueller. And so, and that they sort of recognized who I was and stuff. Um, so that, that, um, one of the things I did in that post, so they can talk about it, um, is I released a text that this person had sent me. And as I said in the post, this person was not at all, I mean, has no perceivable tie to Trump, to the Republicans, to, you know, so, so this person somehow by, 14 hours after the polls closed in November 2016, knew that Trump had put Mike Flynn in charge of working with the Russians on Syria. Okay. And the role that the person that I'm talking about played is, is you're right, it's a fairly alarming role. It, I, it's not, it, I did not go to the FBI lightly, um, and it took me months and months and months to make the decision to do that. Um, so you have somebody who did something bad as part of the larger election operation, um, who also knew what was what the White House, what the Trump transition team was doing 14 hours after the polls closed, and and that to me is shocking. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to explain just how shocking it is without explaining you know the the, the what the person did, but but yeah, so that makes me think things are a lot. And and I've said this, too, that I think that Kushner's public testimony, um, what we know about the reasons Mike Flynn testified, Mueller is very interested, in my opinion, in Trump's immediate move to work with the Russians on Syria. And, And that is what the text was about, was Trump making immediate moves, like, I mean, I, I was still hungover when I got that text, and <laughs> Trump was already working on paying off debts to the Republicans, I mean, right. to, to the Russians. Right. And that's how, I, that's how I view it. That's what I think happened. One of the big, uh, I'm not sure I'd say it's unanswered, uh, not completely answered questions, is that we have this whole kind of, you know, broad and only partly, you know, kind of partly inscrutable stuff going on with Russia, and then you have 
you know, this other set of things going on with people in the Gulf states. And it's clear that they that that they connect up, but it's 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 still sort of elusive to me exactly how they do. And there's um, I mean, it sounds like these these are the kind of things you're talking about. Obviously, both, you know, both of these channels kind of play into what's going on in Syria. That's kind of, you know, we need Russia to help us on ISIS and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, that's oh, we can we can uh, leave, leave that for an, another episode. Let me conclude on this. Is there any any basic point that you think that people who are following this story closely and I mean, like the big macro story that they are not focused on that they're not thinking about that people should be more focused on? Mike Flynn. Um, you know, like, I've seen some stuff recently. You know, we are very focused on the June 9th meeting. Mike Flynn did not attend the June 9th meeting. But nevertheless, the president's national security advisor, I mean, and I also think every single explanation I've seen about why Mike Flynn was fired doesn't hold up. It doesn't make sense. And I think the press corps mostly wants to treat his firing as part of the obstruction investigation, and that also doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, t- so I, I, think- I totally agree with you on that. Totally agree. The, the whole idea that, that lying to Mike Pence never made sense, and it's it's sort of a disappointment the degree to which a lot of the press has, has you know, kind of largely left that in place. But anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted you. Yeah, well, that's... And, and, you know, and I've often talked about this whole operation in terms of a quid pro quo, you get offered emails, you make certain agreements on Syria and sanctions. And that's the short version. Help election, you get Syria and you get um, and you get uh, sanction relief. Well, that's what, that's what Flynn was doing. And he was doing it almost certainly um, because he was doing it on the orders of Katie McFarland, who was at Mar-a-Lago. Right. So he was doing it almost certainly on the orders of Donald Trump, as relayed by Katie McFarland, there were six transition officials who were all in the loop on that, so it's not like everyone didn't know what they were doing with the sanction relief. Um, and so that's that's the first quo. That's the first chaos. Well, aside from Syria, 14 hours after full close. But, I mean, it seems to me that, that that people are, when people say, oh, yeah, the June 9th meeting was a dud, no, it wasn't. Um, you know, nor can you say that it didn't go anywhere? I mean, the, the Aguilar spent a great deal of time in November 2016 trying to follow up on that. They got to a point, December 1, where they said, we're having problems having communication with the president-elect. That's the day that Jared had a meeting with Sergey Kislyak in Don Jr.'s office, by the way, uh, where he raised a back channel. Right. And, you know, and, and ultimately we end up in the Seychelles Islands with, with um, Eric Prince. Right, but, right. But... There's a lot more there in the transition period than I think people make out, and often it it, it is forgotten that Mike Flynn was right at the center of all that. Right. No. This is this is this. You know, it's funny. This is something I've thought a lot about recently. Is that you know, the, in a, in a certain way, the the public Trump Russia story started with Mike Flynn. Like that was like you know, January February of of of. 2017, uh, you know, the fact that he had been in, you know, all these, you know, the calls that it kind of started with him. And at this point, he's almost like he's almost off the charts, right? Like, well, you know, he had that he he 
he pled out to to lying to you know to to misleading FBI agents and they're going to sentence him and stuff. But yeah, it's it's almost like that whole that whole thing is is almost totally off the radar and, and and in some ways I guess on its face a lot of it looks you know, it's hard for things to look more damning on their face than getting an email saying the Russian government supports your dad. We're bringing we're bringing information to help elect your father. And by the way, we are the Russian government, right? You know, it's sort of it's it's over the top. But I but what you're saying totally makes sense to me. And he is the one who brings together these two. I don't you know calling them channels makes them sound too organized. But sort of the you know the 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 Gulf states part of this and the Russia part of this, which are clearly somehow part of the same thing, even though it's not always entirely clear. And Flynn uh, brings those things together. Marcy Wheeler, thank you so much. I, I, you have such an encyclopedic knowledge of these things. For our listeners, uh, Empty Wheel is the, is, is the blog. We did, I, you know, I know going back to like 2003, am I right about that? Or is it before? When did you start? Well, I started uh, blogging in 2004, but the Empty Wheel goes back to 2007. Okay, so so in 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 the Libby, so in the early Libby period was was pre empty wheel. Correct. It was the next hurrah. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, everybody should check out uh, your blog, and uh, I hope you can come on again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. All right. So as you can tell, uh, that like crazy encyclopedic knowledge of like every every character every, every little every nook and cranny but also even like um you know not just who's testified before what committee but the dates and the, and the different um interlocking of yeah you know the, the manafort you know but right before it was raided right. and all that kind of stuff um she's really you know it's funny i i uh partly because i you know there's 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 a lot of things i do at tpm besides the, the writing that that you see and and uh, I I really um, and this is a, a failing on my part I I don't get to read as much as I would like to so I I tend to kind of focus just on the you know the reports that you see you know well Wall Street Journal broke has this new story the Times breaks this new story but I I don't um, I don't spend as much time as I should uh, reading the people who are putting the facts together and explicating them and 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 finding the finding the connections and all that kind of stuff anyway uh hope you enjoyed this episode one thing one one final note in our i believe it was the the last episode we were kind of going back and forth on like should we still have questions at the beginning of the podcast or we should put them at the end of the podcast and uh, a number of you wrote in some of you called and i think the upshot is we're going to do separate podcasts for q a with readers because it really is very it, it's kind of it, it's just different yeah. and um if you have an episode like this where we're going to talk to marcy wheeler questions are great but you 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 know you, you want to hear from her yeah you kind of you you play the episode you want to hear from her so uh what we're going to do is probably do like a second episode uh, a week. We'll just we'll uh, answer questions, and it just has different dynamics. We think that's the best way to best way to do it. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, uh, remember to call in, uh, give us your um, uh, 
uh, tell us your questions, and we'll try to answer them. And we will probably talk to you next week. Uh, actually, not we'll talk to you next week, but we'll probably yeah. have an episode later this week where we'll do some Q&A. So uh, I'll, I'll talk to you then, David. Sounds good, Josh. Bye. Later. <laughs>